Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. The masterclass, by the way, is Jesus' instruction to His disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. So after hearing these previous sessions that we've done in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we heard such weighty issues as justice, anger, ooh, lust, and this is this morning's subject is going to be something that I don't think we think fits. And it's a sin for sure, but in our culture, it's made to appear like a trivial sin or a mundane sin. It's kind of sinning with your pinky up, that kind of thing. And so Jesus ranks this sin such that we, you know, we need to take it more seriously. And I'm talking about, interestingly enough, the misuse of human speech. What we say to others and the ways in which we say it. In Matthew 5, beginning in verse 33, Jesus talks to his disciples about the needless swearing of oaths. Now this verse has been used over the centuries by some to claim that all oaths and vows are like verboten, they're immoral. So certain religious sects, for example, have refused judicial oaths and even liturgical oaths, and there's provisions, at least in our nation, for people who do that. So that's not what these passages are about, however. It's a misinterpretation consequent to not knowing the context. Paul, for example, swore oaths in a number of places in the New Testament, at least three different places, and he swore a religious vow in the book of Acts. So we need to have a context in order to know what Jesus is really up to in these verses, because Jesus is talking about the unreliability of overly persuasive speech. And in these passages, in another from the epistle of James, Jesus and James as well, teach us about the abuse of speech and the importance of not abusing language for the sake of our own ends, whether they're good ends or not. Something we're all prone to do. This is especially true for people uh, speaking publicly in the church, either prophetically or, for example, from the pulpit. At the time of Jesus, there was a habit The same habit is alive and well in our culture today, and that's called social swearing. And we've all heard it. It's where you embellish your language with an oath or swearing in some way in order to drive home the persuasive point that you want to make. And by the way, it's not only in the taking of oaths. It's in the whole way we use speech. Hyperbole, which is exaggeration for the sake of effect. Sarcasm, sardonic humor, those kinds of things. Not that we never use it, but if we use it, it needs to be obvious that it is what it is, and we're, 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 we're acting facetiously, if you will, okay? So we all heard social swearing. Officer, I swear on my mother's grave, I only had two drinks. <laughs> or, I swear to God, I put the check in the mail this morning. <laughs> Upon my father's gray head, I would never do such a thing, you know? And on and on and on it goes, you know. So there's this kind of speech. So I want to begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. And Jesus says this. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. In other words, under the law, Jesus is saying, the idea was that you simply should follow through on what you said and what you said you would do. Don't swear at all if you have no intention to following through upon what you're swearing. And that's, uh, that's 
what Jesus is saying is under the law. But in verse 34, he says, but, but, he says, I say to you, don't take an oath at all. He says, uh, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you can't make one hair white or black. He says in verse 37, so let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. That's an interesting thought, isn't it, right? So Jesus is saying that if what you say is honest, it shouldn't need to be spun. And the message here is entitled, The Sin of Spin. (laughs) All right. There should be no need to embellish what you say with over-the-top language. It demeans whatever the oath is being sworn upon. Jerusalem, the throne of God, the city of the great king. It demeans that. You shouldn't need to take an oath to guarantee what you say. Now, I want to point out the context here is persuasive speech. Uh, In our culture, most persuasive speech, unfortunately, lies within the arena of politics, advertising, hang on to your seats, in church. I'm being persuasive as we speak, right? Jesus is saying that language is routinely used to control, to manipulate, and even to mislead people, all right? And he's saying that the abuse of language is never good, no matter how good or bad we think the end is. Now, since I'm speaking to a 21st century congregation audience here, you online, us here, I want to forge two definitions. The first is this we hear all the time, spin. See, spin, I'm defining it as the misuse of language to manipulate others towards some end. It's the misuse of language for the sake of manipulation. And most of us have experienced this, and we mostly recognize when we're getting spun, and it's part of life. But then there's what I call plain speech. Now, I've used that word plain speech because the fancy word for plain speech is rhetoric, and we don't use that word so much anymore. All right? Plain speech is the ethical use of language to persuade others toward an end. And hopefully what I'm doing this morning is plain speech. It's it's got that edge to it. There's an honesty, I hope, to it. So even though we don't use the word rhetoric, it, it still means persuasive speech. And Jesus would call it plain speech. Now, here's the thing. Even the spin is kind of sewn in to our souls and our personalities. Even the youngest kids spin stuff. All right? I remember the classic example for me. I got like 11 grandkids, right? And I remember probably six or seven of them were staying in our townhouse with us, which happens all the time. Anyway, so when that happens, Trisha really gets saddled with lots of grandkids because, you know, I'm so attentive to them, they really gravitate toward me, right? Anyway, so they gravitate toward their grandmother. After about two days, she said to me, all right, tomorrow I'm going to sleep downstairs. We have a, a bedroom in the basement, she said. I'm going to sleep in. You're getting up with the kids. You're going to feed them breakfast. Don't let them come down and wake me up. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and so two littlest ones was my, were my granddaughter, Violet, who's a little older now, and then Nola, who's in Nashville now. But these two guys are bosom partners in crime. Anyway, there were three and four, something like that. So all the kids got up. When they all got downstairs, I lined them up on the couch. There was probably six or seven of them. I said, 
don't you bother your grandmother. Don't wake her up. And so they said, okay, okay. I said, what do you want for breakfast? So I'm cooking breakfast. And I noticed the two little ones, the three-year-old and the four-year-old, they're not around. That can't be good, right? I look upstairs and upstairs. So I come back down and I go down to the basement. It's dark. Trisha's <laughs> laying in bed. And the two of them are standing in front of her, her face, opening up her eyelids. And they'll plop closed and then opening up the other one. You know, when you're a kid, you do that. So I grab them and I take them upstairs and I'm going to challenge them. And they spun me. I said, I told you not to wake up your grandmother. And Violet says, we didn't want to wake her up. We just wanted to look at her. <laughs> See, that is spin, yeah? It's intrinsic, yeah? It's that kind of thing. My son, Nate, when he was in high school, we challenged him. He was going somewhere. He's 15 years old. He said, I'm going to go somewhere. Is that okay? And I'm like, no, it's not okay. He said to me, well, don't you, I love this, don't you and mom trust me? I said, no, you're a 15-year-old male. I don't trust you. I was a 15-year-old male. And I wouldn't have been so tactful with my daughters. I'd give it to Trisha. But anyway, the deal is there's an intrinsic capacity in all of us to use language to mislead. And Jesus is going after that. Huh? And so everyone knows that outright lies are wrong, right? So especially in the public arena, people work overtime not to lie outrightly if they can. Huh? And so they want to shape language to obfuscate lies by playing with the language of truth. And when people do that, again, it's called spin. And one of the more hilarious lines, it's one of my favorite lines in movies, in cinema, one of the most hilarious lines that I remember in cinema is from the movie uh, Something's Gotta Give with Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton. And Jack Nicholson's character says to Diane Keaton, and only Nicholson can deliver a line like this. He says, Erica, how can you call me a liar? I've always told you some version of the truth. You know, <laughs> only Nicholson can like do that. So here's where the temptation lies. We can spin something to a good end, or we can spin something to a bad end. Either way, Jesus is saying it's wrong. And Jesus says that when we start invoking heaven and the throne of God and our mother's grave and the hairs on our head in Jerusalem, something's wrong. We're spinning what we're after. If you want to do a study on spin, which we don't have time to do, maybe we'll do it at Easter time. You know, Jesus and Pilate, the interchange in the trial of Jesus before Pilate is really fascinating because Jesus is a rhetorical, Pilate is a spinner. Civil court's an interesting situation. You know, on TV, if you look at somebody taking an oath in civil court, they lay their hands in the Bible and say, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what they say. Pennsylvania's different. And I've been in courts in Pennsylvania, not as a defendant, but as a person who's testifying, I don't know how many times. And so in Pennsylvania, what you swear is, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, hang on. Or so as I shall answer to God on the last great day of judgment. Yeah, wow, that probably goes back to colonial days. I'm thinking, I have seen people swear that oath and lie through their teeth, spin things, attorneys and witnesses, and you know. So that's the deal. There's a broad, lucrative industry whose job is to control, manipulate, and even mislead others through the misuse of language to the extent that the spinners in our culture are looked upon as virtuous. Yeah? 
and in the culture, you know, we just see it all the time. By the way, you can spin with your mouth, you can spin with your pen, you can spin with your iPhone, you can spin with your computer, because, you know, there's no end to the ways that you can spin. There even have been yarn spinners in the church as well. Do you believe that? (laughs) I want to expand this discussion to what James, what James has to say in the same spirit of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm reading from James chapter 3 again, beginning from verse 5. James says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts, boasts of great things. Nothing like haughtiness. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world. I mean, listen to this language. of By the way, he's not, James ain't spinning stuff here, okay? A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Now, this is scripture, and that phrasing is pretty important. In other words, the course of lives, our own lives, can be set on fire by what we say, all right? Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, sea creature, can be tamed and, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. I believe that that's true. Here's where we need to go. God can. Huh? God can. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. And the word curse there, we're going to open that up a little bit. We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursing. And listen, James is not talking about cussing, all right? There's a difference between cussing and cursing. My brothers, these things are not to be so. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt or tepid water? Uh, Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? A, A grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, I want to point out that James is not, again, talking about cussing. He's talking about speech which is used against other people. And I have to say that under this principality we're presently worrying on, I hope you understand with all the political stuff and the COVID stuff going on, we're really warring against the principality. And under this principality that we're warring with, some of the ugliest language is being used commonly in and out of the church. All my years, I've not seen the kind of language we're seeing erupt. I think I said about a month, month and a half ago, I believe that this COVID virus didn't produce fear in the church. It revealed the fear that was already in the church, that kind of thing. There are a couple of key principles that James outlines here. First is this. What we express and the way that we express it can affect the course of our own lives. Uh, With the example of the bit and the rudder, James is saying that some things in life, though small and seemingly insignificant, carry disproportionate power to affect and influence the lives of others and our own lives as well. Verse 6 says, our tongues can set on fire. That means to harm or destroy the course, the paths of lives. And the fact that he uses the idea of fire incites in me the whole, the whole visual of wildfires in California, the, the lightning fires, the dry fires that just, you know, sweep away quickly. And see, and if you're in the pulpit or if you're in any public arena, here's the deal. 
once it's out there, you can't gather it back. You know, it's, it's, it's really tough. Mark 7, 20 says, that which proceeds out of a person, this is Jesus, it's that which proceeds out of a person that defiles the person. It affects me. Yeah? So if I have something stuck up my nose for a brother Ralph and I let loose to somebody else regarding that, spiritually, it not only affects him, it affects me. To the extent that Jesus says we will answer for every word that we speak on the last great day of judgment, which, which is presumably why Pennsylvania shaped its oath in the judicial system that way. There's an old latter rain prophet. He died at 102 years old, and he was still preaching. He died two years ago. His name was Arthur Burt, lived in North Wales. And he's been here a number of times. But one of the things that he said, he said this, and it really struck me. He said, it took me almost 50 years to learn that each spoken judgment of another sets up a judgment upon myself. Can I say that again? Each spoken judgment, spoken, spoken judgment upon another sets up a judgment upon myself. So, next principle, the motivation with which we communicate and fashion a truth which God has given us is as important as the very truth itself. Think about that. My motivation and how I fashion the truth is as important as the truth itself. So many examples here. The big one, I guess, is the use of the D word in marriages. You know, I mean, Trish and I have never once in 50 years of marriage uttered the D word because we agreed not to, because it wasn't an option, biblically. Are you there? Because once it's out there, you can't drag it back. Huh? No matter what you're thinking, there's like an intrinsic kind of curse in that, especially if you're fighting. Trish said years ago, way back in our marriage, we were having an argument, a doctrinal discussion. Anyway, she just said, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you anymore. I said, well, why? What are you talking about? He said, you don't fight fair. You can talk faster than I can think. That's what she said. She said, you'll take a position you don't agree with to beat me in an argument. She was absolutely right. You know, that's spin, right? And I began to think about that, and I realized I was sinning. She has to process stuff. So I've learned over the years to back away, let her process. And she probably comes back most of the time and tells me what I need to think and it's right. So anyway, it's that kind of thing. Next, our tongues have the power to control or harness external forces which impact our lives as well as the lives of others. I'm talking about spiritual bondage here. James in verse 10 says, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. He's not talking about cussing, but he's also not talking about involvement with witchcraft or occult agency or anything like that. James is talking about daily mundane language that attracts the demonic. See, this is the definition of cursing. To curse is to intentionally or unintentionally bring to bear spiritual power upon another as we express ill toward that person. Huh? And you notice I use the word unintentionally. In Greek, the verb to curse here that James is using literally means to pray against someone or something, to marshal some kind of supernatural force. All right. So forces of darkness align their strategies upon their powers of observation, and they hear us, and they see what we say, and they see what we do. Anybody who's read Screwtape Letters 
understands this, all right? We can unwittingly direct the attention of the enemy toward or against another whom we speak. And here are two abuses of language that routinely find themselves in church settings. The first is this, it's slander. So slander is telling a lie about someone in order to diminish them in another's eyes. We can slander someone by misinterpreting them and not offering them an opportunity for clarification. Or on the basis of this definition, I've heard every pastor in the Lehigh Valley slandered at one time or another, you know. I mean, I've been the subject of some really creative slander. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, so, you know, we're prone to these kinds of things. But there's another abuse that I think is more routine than slander, and that's gossip. Gossip is telling a truth, not a lie, a truth about someone in order to diminish them in the eyes of another. Of course, I realize none of you guys have ever done that. It's only me that's been involved in this stuff. All right, and then the last one is, it's my term, facial frontal assault. is speaking to another with callous indifference toward them. Do you realize you can know the truth, a truth that sets you free, and you can bring to someone else a truth, and with that truth, slice them to bits? Huh? You know, usually we use phrases like, I'm going to tell it like it is, you know, and in my experience, when somebody comes up to me and says, brother, I'm going to speak this to you, and I'm going to speak it in love, I thought, oh, here it comes, you know, because <laughs> that's spin. So typically Christians don't seek to hurt other Christians. If you do, well, then shame on you, yeah? What I'm talking about here is this. Christians routinely speak to one another with callous indifference. They just don't care how they'll hurt you. That's sin, yeah? It may be the product, you know, it's all kinds of motivation. It's fear, anger, stress. All this stuff is going on right now in the world and the church. Fear, anger, stress. It doesn't matter because God right now is asking, and Jesus is asking in the master class, a behavior that we're prone to to just be laid upon the altar, yeah? I'm not talking about not addressing stuff. Stuff needs to be addressed. We need to approach people about things that we need to approach people on. But there's a way to do it. And I wonder sometimes, especially during this election, if we spend as much time praying for the people that we would like to talk to politically as we do watching CNN or Fox News, what a different world it would be. Anyway, we have to remember we can abuse someone with the truth as well as abusing them with a lie, yeah? So, here's the last thing. This is an attitude that can be cultivated, and it's cultivated in prayer. And when you can begin praying this way, even tomorrow morning when you do your devotional, if you do your devotional in the morning, we can't curse someone if our language is honestly blessing others, if our motivation is to bless, really. If love is working within us, it's almost impossible to bring a curse upon someone. I kind of wish, probably wouldn't make a difference because uh, so many people observed Jesus and didn't learn, but I would love to watch how Jesus transacted verbally, other than the account that we have in the scriptures. And I know, and, and when I watch movies of Jesus, you can feel the difficulty writers have catching the personality, the personhood of Christ in cinema. They just 
carve up the resurrection, but I'm talking about, you know, how he acted from person to person. Because this usually almost has this kind of unreal, wispy, sanctimonious Jesus that walks around, you know, looking religious. And I don't think he was like that. I think he was, I mean, kids used to run after him. So there had to be this inviting kind of ethos to him. I pray we can all have as well. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.